0: It's a pleasure to be uh, back in the pulpit again, back with you guys. Uh, it is uh, it's humbling uh, to know how good and faithful our God is, how gracious He is to His people. Uh, he is He is so very very kind. Um, overwhelmed by His His people and His love, the love He showed in a lot of you who are praying for me. Uh, cards and all kinds of stuff that I got. I'm just very, um, very, 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 very thankful. So I want to say thank you to those here and those who were even maybe watching online who were praying and uh, again just blessed us. And so we're very, 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 very thankful. Um, as you have heard and hopefully are excited and passionate about, we're moving on from the book of Acts that we actually ended back in November and we will be studying the book of John. Um, now I, I want to give us some um, early, uh, I guess, warnings. Hopefully they're, they're not warnings. This is going to be a long, long series of sermons. I'm sure you're shocked by that after, after Acts. There, Gossie, one thumbs up. Pan to that, pan the camera to that, brother. Um, it, it, it's important that, that you know that. This is not going to be a cursory glance. We're not doing an overview. That's really not usually my style. Uh, we're going to dig in, and we're going to dig deep, and we're going to dig long and see what the Holy Spirit of the living God does in the midst of his people through his word. And I've titled this uh, whole series Believe, Jesus, and Live. Believe, Jesus, and Live. Uh, You'll see where I get that from. I didn't invent it really myself. It comes from what the book says that it's about. Uh, A lot of ways and a lot of different people have looked at the gospel of John the gospel of John is a book that we normally give new believers. If you're a Christian and by God's grace have had the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, oftentimes it, w- or it wouldn't be uncommon to say, hey, read, read John. This is, this is the book. Uh, if, if we're maybe struggling in the midst of life or a Christian struggle, we, we oftentimes find ourselves in, in the book of John reflecting upon things that uh, Jesus has said or Jesus is doing that is going to bring us encouragement. Uh, end of life issues where, we're oftentimes going to the to the Book of John to to try to understand the transition that our loved one is going to make, and or the transition that I'm going to make. I want to understand what Jesus promises, what Jesus says to me. Uh, the Book of John uh, we often see on, or at least we used to, on Sunday afternoons as the field goal is preparing to, and and the the kicker is preparing to kick. What do we see? Or used to see between the uprights, John. Three sixteen, probably the most famous uh, verse uh, known by believer and unbeliever. Like some argue, would argue that maybe Matthew 7.1 has replaced that judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, it seems like everybody knows that verse, non-Christian and Christian alike as well. But my point is, is John is a very beloved book. Um, John is a very uh, reflected upon book, and a lot of folks have a lot of things to say about it. Love a couple quotes that I want to share with you. The Gospel of John is like a swimming pool, shallow enough that a child may wade, and deep enough that an elephant can swim. Uh, And and that's so true. There are some things that are really fundamentally very, very clear, uh, that that are very, very obvious in what John is writing. Uh, But there are other things uh, that aren't so clear. There are other things that are are rather deep that we really need to understand at not just a, a overview, but we need to dig in and try to understand. Uh, I love Calvin's quote here. I am in the habit of saying that this gospel is the key which opens the door to the understanding of the other gospels. I think that's so very true. And we'll see how that works itself out when we look at the synoptic gospels being so radically different from the gospel of John. Uh, and, And is that a reason to doubt John or a reason to be encouraged by it? I'm going to suggest that it's to be encouraged. Uh, Lastly, Luther writes these words and we shouldn't be surprised by one of the books that he says he is fond of. This is unique, tender, genuine chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scripture and only a single copy of the epistle of Romans and the gospel of John escape him, Christianity would be saved. Uh, Luther in his doctrine of justification, we wouldn't be surprised by him referring to Romans, but the gospel of John is what he points to as that chief gospel, as that most important gospel uh, that we have a serious, serious understanding of. And it's my prayer, brothers and sisters, for those of you who maybe have studied this book before or, or maybe looked at this book in depth, maybe you've taught it before, that it not lose its luster, uh, that we not just go through the motions of, oh, of course I know that, and, and of course I understand this. There's, uh, I had the opportunity to take a class on C.S. Lewis and the first series of books that we read were the Chronicles of Narnia and those of you who are parents or maybe you're just readers, you've you've read through some of those. And there's a scene where Lucy's interacting with Aslan and she's getting older and she comments, she says, you're getting bigger. And what Aslan says to her is, as you grow older, I get bigger. And he wasn't getting physically bigger, but he becomes more impressive. And I pray that as we study this book, Jesus becomes more impressive, that Jesus is more impressed upon you, that you fall in love with Jesus in a refreshing way that changes you, that encourages you, that encourages others, that Jesus not just be uh, this this baby in a manger, just just this Savior, just this Lord, that Jesus is all those things, but he is so much more that he becomes rich. Uh, he is a source that can never be plumbed uh, and that we grow in our, again our love for him. So this is the key verse. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me. I have the passages for you, but I want you just to know these. If you're going to memorize and someone to ask you, what is the book of John about? Well, John is really the only gospel that tells us what it's about. That's why I don't have to invent the title. I got the title from these two verses, John 20, 30, and 31. Here's what 30 says. Now, pay attention because we're going to come back to 30 as we dig in a little deeper here in a few moments. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, as a result of those signs, those things that Jesus did, but these have been written so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the promised one of Israel that is going to come and rescue his people. He's also the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So think about that dual purpose of John. There's belief and then there's life. And by believing, you have eternal life. Conversely, if we don't believe, we, we don't have everlasting life with the Father. John says, I want you to understand two fundamental things about my my book. It's an apologetic and it's evangelistic. In other words, I want you to be able to defend and understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. And secondly, that Jesus is the son of God, i.e. Jesus is God. And I don't want you just to be in some think tank, sitting back in some building with the steeple on top, talking about and clamoring over and excited solely for yourselves that Jesus is this God. I want you to do something with it. I want you to take it out. I want you to tell others who this Jesus is and that they might also have life in his name. So it's not just about us, brothers and sisters, becoming theological giants and understanding all these theological doctrines that we will discuss in this book. That's wonderful. But what are we going to do with it? What are you going to do with what you know? Hopefully, by the Spirit of the living God, he will cause others to believe others to be put in your path, and you're able to tell them about who this Jesus is. So we're going to ask ourselves six questions this morning about this gospel. We're not even going to dig necessarily into John one one that's a, that's a sermon all in and of itself. We're just doing an introductory overview of this letter, asking, I think, six important questions. Number one, who wrote this gospel? Oftentimes in a commentary, you will read early on in that commentary that this is referred to as the fourth gospel. They don't necessarily automatically attached John's name to it. And depending on the commentary, you, they may conclude that it wasn't John at all that wrote this, at least not the, John, the Apostle John. Maybe John the Elder, maybe someone in the Johannine community, it probably maybe even wanted his, wasn't his written at all. There are some liberal, what I would consider liberal, scholars who would say that over the past few hundred years that has been debated, who actually wrote this book. So we have to ask ourselves, Who wrote it? Well, if you got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to John 1, 1, or maybe the introductory page to your Bible, and I want you to take a peek at it. Now, at the top of mine, this isn't a study Bible. It's just a regular Bible with references, and mine at the very top, yours probably says something like it. It says, the gospel according to John. Well, there's a problem with that. That is not inspired. In other words, John, as he's inspired by the Spirit, doesn't sit down and say, The gospel of John in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was that. That's not how it happens. This was added on a few hundred years later as the early church or the patristic fathers understood who actually wrote this book. So we can't necessarily go by this uninspired language that's at the top to say, well, simply because it says that, therefore we believe that it was written by John. That's not inspired text. No, I believe this is true. Don't get me wrong. But we simply can't go by that. Well, that's what the book says. Well, again, that was not written by John himself. So how do we deduce, how do we understand who wrote this gospel? By the way, why is it even important? Why even go through this exercise? Well, why even worry about who wrote this book? Well, brothers and sisters, if we don't know who wrote the book, how do we, can we really trust what was written in the book? If we don't understand that this was a person who claims to have written a book who really, it really wasn't him... And is this a fraud? Is it fraudulent? Should we trust it? Should we jettison it? Should it never made the canon? Or can we trust it? Can we hold fast to the words that we find so very, very encouraging? And if we're going to summarize who wrote this gospel, what what is this gospel really about? This gospel is really about believing who Jesus is. And if the writer of the book doesn't believe or doesn't understand proper belief, how can we make sure that we're going to understand what it really means to believe? John is going to refer to believing 100 times in this gospel. 100 times he is emphasizing the fact that we must believe. And again, I'm going to submit to you early that John wrote it. And the commentaries I read, one of the wonderful things about studying a commentary for those of us who like to dig pretty deep is that they will give us all the reasons that traditionally the traditional church or liberal church, in my opinion, would not include John as the author. Some have seven or eight reasons and they will go through various textual issues, um, various cultural issues to give us all the reasons why John didn't write it. I'm not going to labor for a few hours on that. This morning, I simply want to suggest to you why he did write it. Ritterboss, in his commentary, says these words in critiquing all those liberal scholars. He says this: the array of hypotheses sometimes leaves the critical reader with the impression with the impression that almost anyone except the Apostle John could have been the disciple who Jesus loved. His, his point there is that it seems like from some scholars, everybody there could have been anybody else except John writing. I would suggest to you that it is indeed John who wrote. So let's look at two evidences that we can go to to help us understand that John wrote this book. We'll look at internal evidence, which and what, what that means is we'll look inside the book itself that gives us markers or hints that John wrote this. Secondly, we'll look at external evidence. What did the church father say? What, did, what was the early understanding? Now, uh, to me, that church history piece, those of you who know me, that's like, I could stay on that all day, um, but, I, but I won't go there for you guys, even though I can see your excitement. I can see you guys all leaned in when we start talking about the church fathers, right? Okay. Um, so we'll look at the internal evidence and then the external evidence. So let's go to John 21 towards the end of the book, and let's look at what is said there that's going to give us some hints. And this is where we got to make sure when we read the Bible that we're not reading it, rather we're... Studying the Bible. Uh, Let's look at this section of scripture. I'll try to give us some context for verse 24 by starting in verse 20. Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Pay attention to that. We've got Peter, we've got Jesus, and we've got someone who is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper. Okay, so pay attention to that. There's two markers for this third person that is remaining nameless at this point. There's two things that are said about him. What? He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Secondly, he is the one who leaned back on his bosom at the supper. Well, what supper? That's the last supper. Uh, that's, that we will cover probably some point in 2022 or so. Uh, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? This man is still nameless. Peter is saying, what's going to happen to this guy in the the future? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, in common vernacular, it would be, mind your business, Peter. Uh, Don't worry about him, Peter. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Now, what disciple are we talking about? The disciple who's with them, the disciple who was leaning on Jesus's breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Okay. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? That's what the early church thought, uh, that, that John would never die. John's not identified yet. Now listen to this. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. Who's the disciple that is testifying to these things? The disciple who was leaning on Jesus's breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So the person that wrote this letter two things have we been told about him. He's, he's the one who leaned on Jesus's breast, and he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, there are other references you don't have. You can write these down. By the way, I think I have this out on uh, PDF online. I think Jared put it out there. So all these slides that you're going to see, I've got like 25 slides. You're, 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 you Don't worry about writing all this stuff down. You'll have it out there unless you want to make some notes. Um, for yourself. There are other references, uh, John 13, 23, John 19, 26, John 20, verse 2, and John 21, verse 7, that refers to this disciple whom Jesus loved uh, as being the one who had had wrote the letter. Again, it doesn't say, John, I'm the one who uh, is the disciple who, who Jesus loved. All we know at this point is, this is a person that loves Jesus and is loved by Jesus. And we know that he is the one who wrote the letter, John 21, 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things, not John yet. Okay, so that's the first thing. He's loved by Jesus, and Jesus loves him. Secondly, this writer is intimately acquainted with Jesus and the disciples. Let's go all the way back to John 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14, we get some more information about who this person was. So he's not just loved by Jesus. He's not, he's not just leaning on Jesus's bosom. He's not just writing the letter. Look at what he says about himself. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, we will define here in a moment who that us is. And we saw his, his glory. Hmm. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So so this is somewhat unique. Now, in our current understanding of sometimes, unfortunately, we we contextualize this and say, well, this is when Jesus appeared to me, or this is when I became a Christian. I beheld his glory, and, and I make it very applicable to me now. But in the context, what's the writer talking about here? There was a group of people who actually beheld Jesus's glory in a different way than we have. He dwelt and tabernacled amongst us. He he existed amongst us. He revealed his glory amongst us. Now there's some question about what is that glory? What is the glory that Jesus had when he dwelt among the people? Or I shouldn't even say the people, I'm sorry, amongst the disciples. I believe the disciples are the us. The disciples are are, are the we that saw the glory here. What could they be talking about? Well, some would say maybe it's the incarnation. That's sort of interesting or somewhat maybe problematic because all the disciples weren't there for the actual incarnation itself could be the baptism of Jesus right all the disciples were there for that and they saw the spirit descend as a dove upon him but that's not all what else happens this is this is my son who am i, I am well please this is my son right but i think it's referring maybe to something else think about what other instant would have been significant that if this is John, that they would have beheld Jesus' glory in a transitioning, life-changing way. The Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are there, and what do they see? Jesus has this holy meeting. with, With who? Moses. Elijah's there. God's talking there. Could that be it? I don't know. But this is a unique way that impacted this apostle. This person that was with Jesus beheld his glory. So whoever this person is, is loved by Jesus, loves Jesus, wrote the letter, and beheld his glory. He is intimately acquainted with Jesus in a way that most people wouldn't have been. So I think it's safe to say, I think we can deduce, this is, this is a person that's an apostle, that's very close to Jesus and very close to the other d- disciples. Now let's pay attention to this. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what he says here. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. That's interesting. Uh, Jesus performing signs... Wonders, miracles, is also reference to revealing or showing his, manifesting his glory. His disciples believed in him. Interesting. His disciples became believers. They believed in him. They have seen signs. This writer, who's loved by Jesus, who loves Jesus, who beheld his glory, understands that the disciples are believers. Verse 17, he says the disciples remembered He's intimately acquainted with the disciples. In verse 22, he says, "His disciples remembered. He knows the disciples. Now here's four I'm going to give you to me that are just clear. This person who wrote this letter, who's loved by Jesus, who loves Jesus, who has beheld Jesus' glory, also in this letter, knows the name of Judas Iscariot's father. Interesting? John 6:71. He knew how long Lazarus had been in the tomb. John eleven seventeen, 17. He knew how long Jesus had stayed in Syker. Four, verse 40. Finally, he is the only one. The synoptics don't even record this. He records the feeding of the 5,000 with this little boy who brings his lunch, but he records a little piece to it that's unique. It was, it was barley. The loaves were made of barley. So this person who's loved by Jesus, loves Jesus, who writes the letter, who has seen his glory, who knows all these intimate details, knows all these little, small, nuanced things. This person's in Jesus's inner circle. This person's in the know. Okay? So let's go to external evidence. Now, here's where we have to, again, get maybe nerdy. Um, Irenaeus says these words. Afterwards... After the synoptic gospel was written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon his breast, we just made reference to that, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Now, church history says we believe that John becomes a leader in the church at Ephesus. Now, who was the pastor there? Timothy. Uh, you can read the book of Ephesians and understand some of the, some of the issues that are, that are there. But John is a leader there before he's going to be eventually exiled. But for a time, he is in this Gentile church, Jew and Gentile church. Working, laboring. Irenaeus attributes the gospel to him. Now That should be significant. And I can't you, I'm see you're so excited about Irenaeus. Irenaeus says it was John. Okay, you guys don't know who Irenaeus is. So I'm going to give you the tidbit. This is going to be the key to unlocking Irenaeus. You ready for it? Polycarp taught Irenaeus. Still doesn't go off. Okay. Polycarp was a disciple of John you see the lineage you, you see how it works you, you see this silver line John gave Polycarp an understanding that this is my gospel Polycarp's disciple is Irenaeus so Polycarp tells Irenaeus and relays that information that John wrote this gospel now you know Polycarp if you read Fox's book of martyrs he was 86 years old. He's Bishop of Smyrna. He's 86 when he is martyred. And if you read the story, he is the one that they say, hey, man, you're an old man. Recount this, Jesus. And he says these, you know, pr- pr- pretty like passionate words that he has not denied me. I am not going to deny him. And he dies. So you see the succession, if you will, of information or understanding that John wrote this gospel. That's external evidence. I'm not saying this is this is not inspired work. I'm not saying against heresies. Uh, his book is inspired work, but the understanding of who wrote this gospel is John. Theoph- Theophilus of Antioch says these words: the holy writings teach us. And all the spirit-bearing inspired men, one of whom John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He attributes John 1:1 to John. He says that John wrote these things. There is others that I could mention, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Dionysus of Alexandria, Eusebius, Eusebius, all cite John as being the author of this book. Again, it's important as we engage in people who would doubt the canon of Scripture that we understand why we believe what we believe, why we should understand what we should understand. The more you know about a book, the more credible you will be, and prayerfully, the more confidence you will have in the book. We can confidently say, John wrote this letter. John, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, the son of Zebedee, brother of the apostle James, who attributes, we attribute four other books to him, right? This is your turn. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. John writes all these these books. He is the one who sees and understands what Jesus has done and records them under the inspiration of the Spirit for us. All right, my time is getting away from me. Why was this gospel written? So we see in John 30 and 31, he tells us that, I want, you to, I want you to believe that you might have life. But who was it written to? What was the situation that was going on? Some scholars believe that John wanted to combat heresies that were uh, beginning to crop themselves up in Ephesus or around the uh, God's people. And basically, uh, most agree with this. There were two errors that began to creep into the church. Uh, and it's funny because they're still around. One is there was a doubting, maybe you're renouncing, uh, a denouncing, it doesn't even, it's not real, that Jesus is God, his deity. The second one, which is it was also wrong, is that to denounce Jesus' humanity. Both those things are important. Concept of the hypostatic union, right? Jesus is 100% God and 100% human at the same time. One of those two or both of those are being doubted. Now, some say Gnosticism is maybe coming into the church that would fit with the Gnostic heresy. But there's a need now to continue to defend. There are plenty of people that will say to you and they'll say it rather maybe slightly. Hey, come on. Jesus was a man, right? Yeah. Well, come on. No man is perfect. So Jesus had to sin, right? No. No. Come on, Jesus, he wasn't perfect. There's was things he didn't know. Jesus, he says he doesn't know these things. No man knows when, the, when, when God's going to return. He's not God. Come on, he's a great guy. He's a, come on, man, he says some great things. He's a great player, coach, man, I like him. He says some really good things. Come on, but you can't believe he's God. Come on, you guys are smart enough to know that, right? That's, that's the mantra of the world. And we're gonna to have to talk about the early heresies, Arianism, uh, that came rise just a few hundred years after this, saying that Jesus was not God. It began to take root in the church. It hasn't left the church. JWs, countless others who would affirm that who would say that Jesus is not God, oneness Pentecostals, those who are in the apostolic faith, who was taught the same language oftentimes. But their dictionary is not the same. And we are unknowing or uncaring to be able to really defend ourselves oftentimes. It is important that we understand the need to defend the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a Greek audience also in mind here that Paul is going, excuse me, that John is going to deal with. And we'll see that right when he deals with the Lagos. In the beginning was the Lagos. What is the divine Lagos? What was the Greek understanding of the divine Lagos? We have an understanding. The Jews had an understanding, but the Greeks did as well. And John is going to bridge that gap and say, this Lagos, this divine reason is a man. He became flesh. He's God. All right. Um, so why was the gospel written? For that reason, uh, uh, when did John write his gospel? Um, man, the guys are all over the map, depending who you read. Um, most will say between 70 and 90. So we got a 20-year window. Uh, Richard Phillips in his, in his commentary says 80. Wasn't that very nice of him? He just uh, goes right in the middle somewhere in the 80s. Now, it is sort of important to understand the dating, uh, especially because of the way John, John writes. He doesn't mens- mention anything about the fall of Jerusalem, which happened when? In, in 70 AD. Uh, he, he doesn't talk about that at all. Uh, he does discuss... Uh, and he alludes to this in John chapter 9. When, when, when we get there, he, he talks about people being put out of the synagogue. Remember the, the man born blind is, is put out of the synagogue for uh, seemingly believing in Jesus. That doesn't happen until the 80s. Um, so, so we've got some, it's not a problem with dating. It's just really hard to understand when this was written. Uh, what we do want to defend, though, is anyone who would say early 2nd century. What would be the problem if we say, hey, this was circa 110, 115? What would be the problem with that, that this was written then? he's dead. It's not John then. Um, so so we got, we'd have a real problem if we're going to give it that early second century date, And which, by the way, depending on who you read, uh, Pillar New Testament commentary by um, D.A. Carson, if you're interested in this, we'll give you a long, 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 long list of why he defends that eighty uh, that range as, as well. So it's important for us to understand that. Uh, number four. Wow. Um, why is this gospel so different from the other gospels? That's the thing that people can't figure out. If you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll say, man, okay, these kind of fit. Um, I, I can understand that there's some different nuances. There's some different emphasis here. Matthew's obviously seemingly written to Jews, Mark, maybe to Romans, Luke to, to Greeks. So I can understand they're emphasizing different things. But for the most part, if we line them up side by side, it's going to be a very similar reading. Boy, but when we get John and throw that in the mix, we say, how is this a gospel at all? Let me point out a couple things. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, which when we say synoptic, it's just a fancy word for seeing together. It means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Those things, for the portrayal of Christ, perspective of Christ, and unique material teaching emphasis, uh, the Synoptic Gospels featured God, the God-man. In other words, they focus more on the humanity of Jesus. It's more historical. This is what Jesus did. These are the signs that he did. These are the prophecies in Matthew that he fulfills. Unique material, uh, this is really neat. Matthew 42%, Luke 7%, uh, um, Luke 59%. Some say Mark is Q, uh, which is that first gospel that uh, maybe Matthew and Luke both referred to as they were writing theirs. And then, but they filled in other gaps, but they used Mark. I think that's possible. But the unique material is a lot less than pay attention to John at 92%. What 92% of John's writing is only exclusive to John. Pretty fascinating. Uh, the teaching emphasis of the synoptic gospels was ethical, practical. It's what Jesus taught. Uh, John's gospel is the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Uh, John is more spiritual, and it focuses on not the, the human, human side of Jesus or his humanity, but him being God, his deity. Uh, I think this is uh, pretty interesting here. And we're going to come back to, to what we just talked about there in a second, about the differences and how they might complement one another. What major themes does John not include? And what does he include? Let's look at what he doesn't include. No narrative parables, Uh, so we won't find rich man and Lazarus, parable of the sowers, some of those near and dear parables to your heart. We're not going to find those in this in this gospel. Um, No eschatological sermons, no uh, Olivet discourse, Matthew twenty-three. None of that kind of stuff. There's not a whole lot of teaching on the kingdom of God uh, in the book of John. Uh, No list of the apostles. Um, no formal institution of the Lord's Supper. There is reference to the Lord's Supper, but there's no, hey, here's what you do. Here's how you do it. Here's what you remember. Here's, here's how you break the bread. Here's how you drink the wine, those things. Uh, no record of the birth, baptism, transfiguration, temptation, struggle in the Gethsemane, or the ascension of Jesus. Now, here's what we've got to ask ourselves: statement. If this guy was the disciple whom Jesus loved, who loved Jesus, who was the witness, who wrote this gospel, who beheld Jesus's glory, who had all this intimate information about Jesus, why doesn't he include these things? When did he write the letter? If he wrote it in the 80s, what would have already been published and circulating amongst the Christian community? The Synoptic Gospels. We believe that John had an understanding that most of the people already understood these things about Jesus. He didn't need to go in and talk about them again. His goal is to do something different. The God-man, his Deity, he wants to focus on that. Well, let's what's included in John. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these again. I've got this out there for you, you guys, don't have to uh, go in Christ's pre existence and incarnation, earthly ministry in Judea and Samaria, his first miracle, his interaction with Nicodemus, bread of life speech, etc. Uh, all these things uh, are unique to, to John's gospel, his taking for himself the name of God that's important. He, he is taking for himself. We don't make Jesus God. This is not a Christian invitation, you know, something that we have invented ourselves. Jesus says he is God. Uh, the Good Shepherd, resurrection of Lazarus, washing the disciples' feet, etc. cetera. Um, all these different things are, are unique to, to John's gospel. Uh, one thing I miss there, uh, and pardon me, uh, John covers more of this a third person of the Trinity than any other gospel, which is what, when I see, that, that should give you a hint. It's not God and it's not Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Uh, he talks more about the Holy Spirit than any other gospel, which uh, if you've read through the book, you you know that. Okay, so why why study John? Oops, went too fast. So let's talk about why... Or how we should put these things together. Um, Karen went out yesterday, and many of you have had this um, fortunate or unfortunate uh, exercises in your home over the last probably six months. You have to interact with family. Fortunate, right? (laughs) Maybe not in your house. And she bought a puzzle. I don't like puzzles. I want to make them go where I want them to go. Not have to, okay, get one and find a little corner, and this corner doesn't fit. I'm just like, you're gonna fit in that corner. I'm not gonna go and wait and think, no. That's a waste of time. Make it fit. Or like the kitty, if I'm gonna do a puzzle I'm with the kitty ones, like with eight pieces, right, that are very obvious, like this is one, two. I want it like that. When we start looking at this letter, we say, or the synoptic gospel, we say, well, this puzzle over here fits. This piece doesn't fit. It, just, it doesn't go in. It seems as if we're, we're forcing these things together. But I'm going to suggest to you, if we really look at it, there's a great book, by the way, called Harmony of the Gospels. Great book. Read it. It puts all of it together. So it'll have like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then it'll have John. And it'll kind of go in this sequential order to give you an idea of where things line up. And it fits very, very nicely. Um, D.A. Carson, again, in his in his uh, Pillar New Testament commentary, says this about the synoptics and John. They represent an interlocking tradition, the puzzle pieces that mutually reinforce or explain each other. Let me give you a couple examples of this. At his trials, you remember, on the cross, Jesus uh, is accused. His accusers say to him, you said you would destroy the temple. Well, what's amazing in the synoptics, it doesn't talk about Jesus saying that. It talks about the accusers accusing Jesus of destroying the temple or saying that. John does. John tells us that Jesus says this in John chapter 2. Verse 9, that he is going to destroy the temple. John uh, is also, uh, when they believe, excuse me, when the Jews bring Jesus in the synoptics before Pilate, why, why do they have to do that? The synoptics don't tell us. John does in 18 verse 31. That Pilate had not reserved the right for the Jews to kill someone. It fills in the gap. How did Peter get into the high priest's courtyard? Synoptics don't tell us. John does. It's amazing as we look at John in light of the other gospel, it becomes, we get more understanding. We get more, more light. The pieces fit together. After the feeding of the 5,000 in the synoptics, what does Jesus do to the crowds? He sends them all away. Why does he send them away? John tells us, because they seek to make him king. See, these aren't disjointed. They can probably fit together if we take the time to actually look at them, to fill in the gaps. Don't let someone tell you that this doesn't fit. This is not part of the Gospels, because it's so radically different. No, it fits in. Now, are there some issues that we're gonna to have to talk about that we were, that are maybe some textual problems and we gotta we're gonna wrestle through some stuff here. Because John writes some things that we may, we don't properly always understand. And that's gonna to be tough because we want to believe the letter, but there are things, lo and behold, there are things about the inspired writings that we may not understand. Uh, hopefully that doesn't cause us to not believe, it just causes us to be humble. Okay, so in closing, wow. Why even study this book? Five points I want to give us as we close out. Number one, to worship God for his gift of grace provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would return to a point where we're excited about who Jesus is or have a renewed interest in the worship of God because of his gift of, of Jesus. Now you say, well, how could that ever happen? Uh, I said John wrote five letters. What was the last one we said that he wrote? Revelation. Revelation. Um, He writes to a church, let me see, what church was that that he was, oh, Ephesus. What does he say? What's the admonition to the church in Ephesus? You've left your first love. Is it possible for a Christian to not see Jesus as clearly as they once to appreciate him or see him as clearly as they once did? It's absolutely possible for Jesus to lose his luster. I pray that we return as we study this book and give God worship and glory for opening our eyes, maybe kindling afresh our passion for Jesus. Number two, to learn or renew our wonder and all of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, do you know it's a privilege to be known of Jesus? We're going to talk about that in this book. I'm always amazed as people, and they will very cavalierly say, well, I know Jesus. And, and, and usually in, when if I'm making an evangelistic appeal, I would like, dude, that's really not the question. The question is, does Jesus know you? Matthew 7 says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I cast out demons in your name? I performed miracles. I have spoken tongues. I, went to, I had great church attendance. I owned a really nice Bible that I'd even underlined on occasion. I, I, I had all these things. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You thought you knew me, but I didn't know you. The question is, does Jesus know you? You meet all kinds of people on the street and say, I know Jesus is. Yeah, I know who he is. You guys just celebrated his birthday or something. I know who he is. Does Jesus know you? I pray that you have wonder in awe that Jesus knows me, knows you by name. That where I am, there you will be also. Those words were promises for the disciples, but they're also promises for us. Promise of the Spirit was for them, but it's also for us. I don't pray for them only in John 17, but for those who are going to believe after them. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. I pray that we are humbled by that and thankful for that. Number three, to understand Jesus Christ and believe and have life in his name. Maybe there are some in this room that have never surrendered their will to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe by studying the book of John, you will relent. You will turn over your will to his. That you believe and have life, eternal life with the Father. That you have true biblical belief. Not as we, the world says, but John's belief. Number four, to gain a greater understanding of key biblical doctrines, we're going to talk about things that maybe some of you have never heard before. Tritheism, Arianism, Monarchianism, things relating to the Trinity. I want you to know the Trinity through and through by the time we're, we're done with this study. Some say, I think it was Augustine, who said, if you neglect the study of the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to study the Trinity, you lose your mind. So we're going to be somewhere in the middle. No, hopefully not. We'll lose our mind. To greater understanding, but there'll be other doctrines that we study. Um, what does this is gonna be fun? It's gonna be challenging to you guys. What does John 3:16 really mean? Who does God really love? Does he love the world the same as he loves his children? Who is the atonement for? Was his blood for everyone or the elect? Does God hate? Ooh, I've captured your attention. We're going to start it at 1230. Just kidding. (laughs) Last piece. To accept... Uh, and go uh, with, with Jesus and his ministry of reconciliation to the world. In other words, we're going to learn these things. We're going to understand these things, but we're not going to hide our light under a bushel. Prayerfully, what we learn and know and understand and have passion about is going to cause us to try and impact a lost and dying world. John is going to spend a lot of time, brothers and sisters, talking about light and darkness, hate and love. There are these contrasts that John has that are are very obvious. And I pray that we understand that there's a lost and dying world that needs the impact of the light. I pray that we see from the very beginning that the Son of God tabernacled amongst his people and that we can't simply abandon the world or go on weekends missions trips. I'm not saying those things are bad, but our mantra, our aim or goal ought to be impact this world for Christ. Now I'm going to say this in closing. I'm always concerned about letters like this and studies like this because we have an enemy. We have an enemy who would seek to destroy the teaching of the gospel of truth. Amen. Always has. I think you can anticipate as you prayerfully press into this study, please, John, or excuse me, Ephesians 6 tells us, I want you to be aware of Satan's schemes, his devices. As we press into any biblical study in a serious way, praying for change, don't expect the enemy just to simply sit by. It's going to be a potentially. I'm not immune from that. So my point in saying that is not to cower in fear, because he that is greater in you it's greater than he that is in the world. But that we pray for one another. We're going to talk about the Trinity, Jesus being God next week. Do you think Satan wants that message to get out? I promise you, he doesn't. So let's spend the last couple of minutes before we take communion, just praying, praying as the Lord leads you, praying for people in your family, praying for our community, praying for me, just praying Lord, keep us from the evil one. Keep the evil one from us as we engage in this study. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters gathered here who are listening in online. Lord, as we talk about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, demons tremble. They hate him they would not want ears to be opened. They would not want eyes to be opened. They would want blindness to remain. They would want deafness to remain. So Father, I pray that by your power, by your spirit, Lord, that you, through your word, would open eyes, open ears, that you would keep distractions far from us as we enter into this building and Seek to not just worship you in song, but to worship you in study and engaging our minds. Gracious God, would you keep us focused. Would you keep us steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in, in your work, relying on your grace, trusting in your strength. Lord, we realize that you resist the proud. so We can't proudly say, oh, I'm going to do this in my own strength. No by your spirit. We humbly come before you and submit and surrender. Open our eyes. We grow a greater appreciation for Christ. Open our hearts. Greater affection for Christ. Greater affection for your people. Greater affection for the lost. Change us through this study. For your glory. For your glory alone. God, would you do that for your sake In Jesus' name, God's people pray, amen. Amen.